This is the TriDot Podcast. TriDot uses your training data and genetic profile combined with predictive analytics and artificial intelligence to optimize your training, giving you better results in less time with fewer injuries. Our podcast is here to educate, inspire, and entertain. We'll talk all things triathlon with expert coaches and special guests. Join the conversation and let's improve together. Together. New show today, and it's going to be a great one. We'll be talking bike culture, safety, and advocacy with a special guest from an organization called Bike Law. Rachel Maney serves as the National Director for Bike Law, a network of independent bicycle crash attorneys. She's a multiple-time Ironman finisher who has represented Team USA at the ITU Long Distance Triathlon World Championships. She is passionate about bike safety and cycling advocacy, fighting for the rights of cyclists through the efforts of Bike Law and the Bike Law Foundation. Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the TriDot Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Also joining us today is Coach John Mayfield. John is a USAT Level 2 and Ironman U certified coach who leads TriDot's Athlete Services, Ambassador, and Coaching Programs. He has coached hundreds of athletes ranging from first-timers to Kona qualifiers and professional triathletes. John has been using TriDot since 2010 and coaching with TriDot since 2012. What's up, John? Man, I'm excited for this one. I feel like every podcast is going to be our best, and I think this one is going to be right up there with him as well. This one's going to be great. Every podcast, we get a little bit smarter, and uh, today is no exception. Well, I'm your host, Andrew, the average triathlete, voice of the people, and captain of the middle of the pack. Today, we are going to get going with our warm-up question, and then we'll move on to the main set, talking with Rachel Maney from Bike Law. Then we'll cool down with Rachel telling us all about Challenge Daytona, a really great race in Daytona, Florida that Bike Law is a proud partner of. It's going to be a great show. Let's get to it. Time to warm up. Let's get moving. So the sport of triathlon is famously swim, bike, and run with a history that traces back to the city of San Diego in the 1970s. But John, Rachel, there are a ton of different sports out there. What if we added just one of them and created something new? Let's call it a quadathlon. If you are in charge and it's your pick, what sport would you add into the mix of swim, bike, and run to evolve the triathlon into the quadathlon? Rachel, it's your first time on the podcast, and so I'm going to make you go first. What's your pick? Um, you know, I, thinking about this, obviously it would have to be an individual sport. And I actually think that quadathlon might be an organized, uh, sport or collection of disciplines already. So I'd probably go with kayaking maybe. Okay. So like, so, you know, we already start in the water, so why not return to the water in another way? That one makes sense to me. And if, if I'm you know, I'm thinking this is a creative idea. Maybe somebody out there has already created it and is already an organization for a quadathlon, and I'm going to have somebody emailing me <laughs> saying, we were already doing this, and it's swim, bike, run, kayak. Um, so, so yeah, but so, so John, if it's you, if it's up to you, and you're creating your own quadathlon organization, uh, what sport are you adding to swim, bike, and run? So I famously struggle with these warm-up questions, but I actually have have, have two answers for yeah, this you're, one. Yeah, yeah, and you're happy this with them? Good. Yeah, I think so. So prior to my life, I, I was going to call it career, hobby, whatever in, in triathlon, but not my life in triathlon, um, I was almost this involved in, in golf. And I have gone from 
being completely immersed in, in golf and playing every week and living that lifestyle just like I live triathlon yeah. now. So maybe like a marriage of, of my two uh, sporting passions. I always say like when I retire, golf is be there waiting for me someday, so I'll get back. But, you know, if it's a thing, you know, swim, bike, run, and then go play golf. But that would be a really long day. Um, so my, my other thought and probably what I would actually do You could do speak with, golf. Right? That is a thing. Like just like one hole well. maybe? Yeah. Um, I think what what is the best quote unquote fourth discipline for for the quad would be uh, here in Texas we love to tube our our beautiful famous rivers and uh, there's Go actually float the river exactly yeah so it's kind of like what Rachel was thinking mine's just a little less involved you know no rowing just sit back in your tube and chill there's a great race in Kerrville Texas right on the Guadalupe River you run right along the Guadalupe and they actually have tubes at the finish line because the finish line's like 50 yards from this beautiful river yeah and so that's that's it they have a beer garden you can grab your beer grab a tube and chill in the river that is the best finish line ever so I'm gonna say swim bike run tube, tube. but yep. I mean John that, that doesn't even sound like a race Rachel does that, does that sound like a race to you you know I don't know race recovery that sounds good to me I mean you can set up a start and a finish line like yeah John, John's just getting us to the finish line experience, uh, the 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 post race beers and uh, relaxation it part a little bit quicker. It just mixes it all in, yeah. All right, okay. Well, hey, I mean it's your pick, so I, I who, who am I to tell you that's a bad pick? Um, yeah, I I actually, John, I actually struggle with this one. A lot of times, I come up with these questions and I, I have a particular answer in mind, uh, knowing the question in advance. But um, I was kind of like Rachel. I was like, this needs to be something that is a race inherently, right? You're you're on the clock for this, so. It can't just be any sport, um, you know, because it has to be a sport that you're, you're racing and, you, and there's a time frame to yeah, it. Swim, bike, run, basketball doesn't Yeah, doesn't really yeah exactly. Swim, bike, run, tennis just doesn't quite, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's got to be something where you're on the clock and you're trying to finish something. So I, I think Rachel's pick is fantastic. Uh, John, your pick is questionable, but sure, it's yours. Uh, I, I kind of went back and forth. Did you guys ever watch on ESPN? Uh, I don't know if they still air this, but when I was a kid, uh, ESPN would air like the Lumberjack games. Yes. Do you remember that, Rachel? I do. I do. And and so they would have like literally just like competitions for like log rolling, you know, where the guys are trying to like knock each other off the log rolling, uh, you know, on the same log. And they would have where they would race up and down like telephone poles with um, uh, essentially, you know, lumberjack crampons on, on their feet. And, and they would, you know, have competitions where they would axe wood and, and see who could chop the most wood. And, and so that, that was like the first thing that came to mind that um, is like a race. That is something different. And my pick is questionable. Yeah, right. So like maybe you get off, maybe you get out of the swim and it's, you have to like ax like 10, you know, 10 logs before you move on to the bike leg. I, I don't know. Like I would be terrible at it because I'm, I'm just a small dude. So I, I'm like putting myself at a, even a further disadvantage, uh, further deep into the middle of the pack. But um, that was the first thing that came to mind that was different. That was a race. I was just thinking about the, the, the athlete waivers for, <laughs> for your lumberjack portion. Of so, somebody would be dehydrated coming off the bike and, and would just totally miss uh, with, with an ax and there'd be accidents. So, so let, let's, you know, let's end this warm up, conceding that John's idea is uh, probably better than mine. I probably had the worst idea of the three of us. Let's just go with the kayaks. On to the main set. Going in three, two, one. Our main set today is brought to you by our friends at Garmin. In the fitness and multi-sport market, Garmin products are the gold standard. Known for their compelling design, superior quality, and best value. As a triathlete, Garmin can be and should be your very best friend. They offer best-in-class GPS watches that can track your every swim, bike, and run with ease. When you are out on the bike, Garmin's Vector Power Pedals 
can measure those all-important watts, while their edge cycling computers conveniently display all your data in real time as you ride. You can also bring Garmin into your pain cave with their Tax Indoor Trainers and Accessories. I tell everyone who will listen that my Tax Flux Indoor Smart Trainer is the best investment I have made in my own triathlon training. The best part is Garmin is fully integrated with TriDot, so your Garmin Connect and Garmin Health data seamlessly streams to TriDot and your training is continually optimized. So head to Garmin.com and check out all the cool tech they have to offer. Every time we hit the road on our bikes, enjoying the ride might be at the forefront of our minds, but thoughts of staying safe are always lingering in the back. With cyclists being so vulnerable on the road, it's great to know an organization like Bike Law is ready to have our back if something unfortunate happens. Today we are talking through what to do if you find yourself involved in an accident and how Bike Law is fighting to raise awareness for cyclists' rights and safety. We are so glad to have Rachel Maney from Bike Law joining us for this conversation. You know, but but Rachel, before we even get to Bike Law and bike safety, um, kind of give us a little peek into your own tri journey. How did you get involved in the sport? Um, you know, I, I'm not really sure how common this is, especially for long course triathletes, but I have a lot of friends who made a segue into triathlon in a very similar way. I was a runner, um, just recreationally that then, you know, became interested in running competitively and, uh, distance running was something that, you know, you, you, at least for me, it was just me and the pavement or me and the trail, uh, it almost became therapeutic or cathartic in, in some ways, depending on what was going on in my personal life. Um, I've always been a, at least mediocre swimmer, uh, never swam competitively, uh, but always felt very comfortable in the water. And it just seemed like a natural progression to add the bike, had lots of friends who were racing triathlon. And, you know, I've, I've heard it said before that when you stand at the finish line or in the finishing shoot of any Ironman race, you have one of two responses. It's either they're absolutely crazy or <laughs> that's something I have to do. And I found myself very strongly in the latter category. Yeah. You know, it just, and I get goosebumps even thinking about it. The first Iron Distance race or Ironman race that I, uh, which I was a spectator was Ironman Arizona. And, um, you know, that's just such a special race, I think. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it just became Became this long-term goal that then very quickly became a short-term goal. So that's how that uh, came to be. So you actually specialize in long course ITU events, um, which is so unique and, and so cool. Um, and, and you had the opportunity to represent Team USA at ITU Worlds in uh, up in, in Canada. Um, what was that experience like for you? It was really special. You know, I, there are I think different tiers or, you know, potentially goals for age group triathletes. And, you know, some people aspire to go to Kona, some people, you know, for me, this was, um, a goal that I set for myself that I felt was attainable, uh, for being at, at the time, slightly better than mediocre, <laughs> you know, slightly better than average. But the, I think one of the biggest draws for me, what was so attractive was the race location for sure. Um, British Columbia, the Vancouver area, and then North of Vancouver in Penticton. Um, it, it is one of, 
I think that one of the most special places on the planet, it is absolutely breathtaking. The people are so welcoming. Um, you know, the, the changes in topography, the, the, the water, uh, everything was just really, really magical. So it was a, a great experience. What, what was maybe, um, you know, from, from an Ironman race day, um, and, and I, I believe your, your time was a very impressive, just under nine hours. Um, if, if I, if I am remembering correctly, um, you know, so from that eight hours and, and, and something on course, what, what was maybe a standout memory, uh, from that race day? Um, you know, I think fellowship is a really big part of what makes the triathlon community special. There's, you know, we come from so many different walks of life. We're such a diverse community like the cycling community, but we have this thing in common and different dispositions, different personalities, but the same predilection to be committed and, and to work hard. Um, you know, there was, it was nice seeing friends, both that I knew personally and ones that I had connected with over social media, um, on course. Um, you know, and there's that sense of instant gratification or accomplishment that you train for something for what could be six months to a year. And it's over relatively quickly, but you know, what you've done is something pretty significant that, you know, less than half of 1% of the population will ever be able to say that they've done. And so with you, you know, loving that race location so much, I, I believe Ironman is bringing um, the Ironman race back uh, there. Or sh should our athletes in Canada be expecting to see you, um, you know, g going back to race that course again? So it's it's a great question. It's it's kind of funny that, that you ask that. I retired from Iron Distance Racing a couple years ago. So did John. <laughs> well, when they brought Ironman Canada back to Penticton last year, I did register. Um, it was canceled, uh, well, postponed until next year, 2021. But I am actually registered for Ironman Canada 2021. All right. Well, it'll happen and uh, eventually, and we'll uh, we'll be rooting for you. So, kind of going back uh, and, and getting into kind of your history with bike law. Um, back in 2015, you were out on a training ride, um, prepping for Ironman Arizona, uh, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and on a training ride for IMAS, you got hit by a car. Um, kind of walk us through that accident and, and tell us what what happened out there. So, the first thing is, it it certainly wasn't an accident. It was a crash. Um, the reason that I point out the difference between those two words and, and, and why that difference is so significant is because an accident would imply that it's either an act of God or something that was unavoidable. Mm. What we're seeing nationally and even globally is when we look at the prevalence of bicycle crashes is that there is a significant deficiency amongst motorists to be attentive when they are behind the wheel. There is a sense of entitlement to the roadways um, that I think is a very large contributing factor to why we have so many crashes. Um, I was I was almost finished with this training ride when I was merging from a separated bike path coming over a bridge. This is in Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm not sure if you are familiar with the topography there, but to get from one place to the next, you have to cross over some body of water. And, um, so there's lots of, 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 uh, rivers at, well, there are lots of bridges. Um, and I was coming over a bridge. I was on the bike path and I of course signaled and waited for a really substantial break in the vehicular traffic. It's a two lane, um, contraflow road in one in each direction. 
And as I was merging from the separated bike path onto the, the road, um, I was just about over, you know, a few inches to the left of the white fog line when I could hear the engine, um, the acceleration from the vehicle that was approaching. And the driver of this Mercedes attempted to pass me by crossing over the double yellow. Unfortunately, there was a white pickup truck coming in the opposite direction. Mm. And so, of course, she had to make a decision, head-on collision with an F-250 or you know, take, take me out, um, in, in the lane of traffic. And so she, she took me out. Um, and as I was holding on to the side view mirror, um, you know, I, I, it all happened very, very quickly, but, um, what happened afterwards, I think is more egregious than the crash itself. And we see that pretty often with motorists who have collisions with, uh, bicyclists or other vulnerable road users. So can you share some of that, that egregious uh, experience? The driver was incredibly aggressive with me. She was not only defensive um, in justifying her behavior, wow. she was yelling at me that, that, that I had actually hit her, not the other way around. I, and I guess that it becomes one of those, you know, the cyclist just came out of nowhere as if we just materialize out of thin air. Um, luckily for me, there was another bicyclist who was coming in the opposite direction on the path who witnessed the entire crash, uh, called the police, um, so that we could get it documented. And, um, of, of course the, the police officer found her responsible both for the causation of the crash and, and for liability, um, in resolving the, the, the crash. But, you know, there are things that happen to somebody that's riding a bicycle if they've been involved in a crash that can only be resolved with fortitude and, and with time. Um, you know, it's a very difficult thing to go from being on a bicycle, which engenders feelings of freedom and empowerment, independence, autonomy, to immediately assuming the role of a victim. Um, and, and one of the things that I think we all have in common as cyclists, as triathletes, is that we have a very staunch sense of independence and um, and, and fortitude, for, for sure. Yeah. So it is really, really tough to be paralyzed by, not physically, but just in general by the circumstances of a crash you know, over which the cycling victim has little to no control. So I, I think even just hearing you speak, that's something I think it's important for us to even even adjust our mindsets and in our vernacular is that it's it's not an accident, it's a crash. Yeah. It's like you would describe a car crash. Right. If, you know, if, in that scenario, had you been in a vehicle and she been in a vehicle and she hit you, it, it would have been a car crash. And yeah, I think even for us, I think that's somewhat of a, a mentality shift. And I, I think sometimes we even have that sense of, of obligation of, you know, generally it is the vehicles that are on the road. Are we infringing? I know we have the legal right to be, but you know, what, what part did we play? But yeah, you're right. You know, it's, it's, we have the right, we have, uh, every opportunity and, and, uh, 
we should be on the road as well, and they should respect that. But yeah, uh, so yeah, it's it's you know it's on them. It's when we're doing what we're supposed to be, then then obviously it's it's their fault. So uh, Rachel, what what were your um, injuries? So I was I was very very lucky. Um, I ended up walking away with a couple of broken ribs, lots of soft tissue damage, a ton of road rash, of course, a mild concussion, um, but nothing life threatening. Um, so I consider myself to be very, very lucky. I, I think just going back to what you just said about the the importance of words, um, you know, when you when you call it a bike accident, you are taking the agency or the, the accountability or responsibility away from the motorist. And as a vulnerable road user, whether you're a cyclist, a pedestrian, a construction worker, a, you know, uh, someone in a wheelchair, on a scooter, even a motorcyclist, you know, the, the burden or the onus of responsibility to exercise a greater duty of care when on the road as a motorist, um, is, is one that should be taken seriously. You know, riding a bicycle by definition is imperfect. When you're in a vehicle, you don't have to worry about debris in the road. You don't have to worry about crosswinds. You don't have to worry about small potholes or roadkill. (laughs) You don't have to worry about rumble strips. Um, you know, there's just a myriad of variables or circumstances that create obstacles for people on bikes that don't exist when you are behind the wheel of a car or a truck. So, you know, the the responsibility is and should be greater for the person who has more power, right? With greater mm-hmm. power comes greater responsibility. Yeah. So so I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind. I, I, I It's important to recognize that Um, you know, bicyclists had a right to the road long before the invention of the car. Um, we are expected to follow the same rules and laws. We're expected to ride predictably and responsibly and lawfully. Um, and just because we don't have, we're not encapsulated in a 3000 pound, you know, death machine doesn't mean that, you know, our, our rights are lesser than. So I think that Mm -hmm. one of the things that we can do as cyclists and as triathletes is to encourage encourage people to denounce the idea that we are second-class citizens on, on the roads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oftentimes we're treated uh, that way or, or worse. So was was this the, the catalyst that got you involved with bike law? Here's the thing about bike law that's really, really, uh, I think, interesting and important to share with people is that bike law was founded on the heels of a familial tragedy. Uh, my partner, Peter Wilborn, is the founder of bike law. And he lived in West Africa for many years and then moved to Geneva and was practicing civil rights law for the United Nations before returning to the States. And when he did, his brother, Jim, was killed while riding a bicycle um, in 1998. Peter met with the attorney that was handling Jim's estate. He asked Peter if his brother, Jim, had a DUI. And of course, Peter was taken aback by that question and said, Mm. no, why would you ask that? Um, and this, you know, white collar, you know, bulldog, uh, you know, plaintiff's attorney, the, the best in the state said, well, why else would a grown man be on a bike? And that, that train of thought, that inaccurate correlation between riding a bicycle, um, and having done something in 
the past to warrant not being able to drive a vehicle mm-hmm. is we have to get rid of that. The idea mm-hmm. that, you know, riding a bike is for derelicts, people with DUIs or criminals. I mean, that's just absurd. Mm-hmm. And it was in that moment that Peter recognized that his very specific and highly developed skill set as a civil rights attorney could be used to represent and protect and advocate for another community of people who needed that particular service. And so um, we look at what we do, what the Bike Law Network does, what our foundation does as a social change movement. And not all too dissimilar from how we look at the civil rights movement, what we're trying to do is level the playing field to make sure that in our pursuit for cycling justice, our community is well represented and educated and that we have a seat at the table um, as opposed to being an afterthought. Well, I, I just say, even now, I'm just, as, as you're describing that, I'm just personally grateful for, for what you guys are doing and, and the fact that there is an organization that is out there advocating for, for me and, and my friends and, and my loved ones and this community that is, that is so special to me. And I, I think that's, as you mentioned before, that uh, I, and I agree that, that perhaps the greatest thing about triathlon is not swimming, cycling, and running. It's the, it's the people that we do it with. So the fact that we are um, largely somewhat taking, taking even our lives um, and placing those at risk every time we ride out there on the road, um, I'm just, even now, just reflecting on how grateful I am that there is an organization that is advocating for safety and education and, and rights that, 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 as you're saying, that are the rights and, and laws are, are really already there. Uh, so it's, it's, I think, oftentimes a matter of, of just having that, uh, the knowledge and um, the foresight to, to see that. Well, it's sad that knowing, you know, that, that you have your own friends, you know, that, that are cyclists out there on the roads on, on different days, and sometimes you're out there and sometimes you're not, you know, when you hear of, uh, a buddy, a friend, a colleague, a peer, someone you follow on Strava, you know, get, getting hit by a car or, or grazed by a car or knocked over by a car or routed off the road by a car, you know, that that you're never surprised, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's always a reaction of like, well, you know, as many friends I have that are, are cyclists, you know, it's bound to happen to somebody at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that shouldn't be the case. You mentioned that that bike law was was born out of personal tragedy tr- tragedy with with Peter's family. Was he a cyclist at the time? Yes, Peter's always been a cyclist. Uh, grew up in the D.C. area. Had lots of friends that were bike messengers. You know, when he was a little kid, he came home and he shaved his legs after watching the movie Breaking Away. So he's a real cyclist. But by real cyclist, you know, I, I think that that's we each of us would define that differently but at bike law our belief and our ethos is that anybody who sits in that saddle anybody who pushes the pedals around is a cyclist and mm-hmm. so it it was a very very personal experience of course losing his brother but an even more personal experience because you then begin to think, well, am I next? You know, w- what happens if it's somebody else that I know or love? And and as you had mentioned, um, in the context of how you would respond to hearing that a friend or someone you follow on Strava or whatever um, has been involved in some sort of uh, cycling injustice, whether a crash or a punishment pass or a close call or just harassment on the road, um, that it's not a matter of if, but when. Mm-hmm. And so for all of us at Bike Law, not only are these crashes or do these cycling members of our community or victims become our friends, um, a lot of them were friends to begin with. You know, So it's 
there's a, you know, there's an added layer of sense of responsibility and desire to, to help to the best that we can. So the structure of bike law um, in itself is really unique because um, instead of having kind of full-time staff lawyers, bike law is a network of independently practicing bicycle crash attorneys, um, and, and they take on cases at, at little to no cost uh, to the client. Um, kind of just talk us through how this system works. Th- that's correct. So, so bike law is not a law firm. Bike law is a network, and it is a network of multiple independent firms in which either one or more of the lawyers in those firms are bicycle crash attorneys. And the reason that we do that is it's it's multifaceted, but what we want to do is provide every cyclist, wherever they are, with a comprehensive resource in which they're going to get consistent representation um, and where the crash victim is going to get the as close as possible to the most desired outcome. And that requires that requires embracing and celebrating the differences between these attorneys, but also the differences in, you know, the bike laws from state to state, even within one municipality to the next. Um, we believe that the pie, there's the pie is big enough for everybody. You know, we want to, um, there's no pride of authorship or, or sense of, you know, it, what we want to do is say, Hey, if you come to bike law, there are things that you know that you're going to get, you're going to get incredible client outreach and communication. Um, you know, the idea, a lot of times people complain about, about lawyers, and and I understand why. But the idea of being involved in a crash and having to call, um, you know, a law office and speak to a secretary who says, yeah, in three days, you know, we can get you a 15-minute appointment or a consultation, and, you know, that doesn't work for us. We recognize that bike crashes don't happen Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. You know, we are reachable and available 24-7. And we look for lawyers who are willing to help every cyclist, regardless of what the circumstance might be. And sometimes there's not much that we can do. Sometimes, you know, it's a matter of providing information and just offering support. Sometimes, you know, there's a lawsuit that has to be filed. Other times, you know, every circumstance and situation is different. Um, But the reason that I want to stress that we want to help everyone is because these lawyers, of course, they have to make a living. Um, you know, we have to, to make a living. So not every case that we do is at no cost. Um, however, we don't turn people away simply because there isn't a huge insur- insurance policy or because there's not a lot of money to be made. That's not what we're looking to do. What we're looking to do is to provide whatever assistance in whatever capacity is needed to the cyclist that is in, in need. So, um, we do a lot of pro bono work. Uh, Peter actually received the uh, Pro Bono Publico Award in 2007 from the American Bar Association. Um, and we have several lawyers in our network who are consistently doing, you know, helping cyclists at, at, at no financial cost or burden. Um, but one of the reasons that we're not a completely, you know, pro bono network or firm specifically is because 
if we look at the way that nonprofits operate and some of the challenges that they have, a lot of their time is spent fundraising so that they can compensate the people working for the organization or just get their 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 mission off the ground. Um, and the great thing about the Bike Law Foundation, which is our nonprofit organization, is that it's self-funded. You know, so we're never asking for money from people. We're never, you know, trying to. What we're trying to do is is we take what we have and we pump it back into the bike advocacy world. So what are uh, maybe a few examples just of recent cases, you know, in, in which bike law was able to really get a favorable result in court? That's a great question. Um, you know, if I go back a few years, I, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are familiar with uh, a young man named Patrick Wanakoff. He is originally from South Florida, but he was a physics teacher at the Bronx School for the Arts. And at 25 years of age, he um, was volunteering for a nonprofit organization called Bike and Build, fantastic group of human beings that um, bike all over the country. This particular ride was a, a cross-country ride um, beginning in Maine and ending in California. And they build homes for the socioeconomically disadvantaged along the way. And in Oklahoma, he was killed while riding by a woman named Sarah Morris, who was checking a notification on one of her apps on her smartphone. Wow. It is very, very, very difficult. And it is disappointingly rare to see criminal charges filed and um, in in bike crashes, even when they're catastrophic or when there is a death involved. Uh, it, in this particular case, she was charged with first-degree homicide, which is um, a felony. Uh, she was convicted and found she's found guilty. But that was a, a pretty significant check in the win column for us, but even more so for Patrick's parents and sister. You know, there is nothing that we can do to alleviate the the weight of the grief that a family experiences when they lose a husband, wife, son, daughter, you know, sister, brother um, in a, a bike crash. Um, but what we can do is work as closely and cooperatively as possible with state's attorneys, prosecutors, police departments all over the country to dovetail to the best of our ability the civil side of things, which is your bodily injury and property damage claims, with the criminal side of things, which is making sure that a driver who kills a cyclist is brought to justice within, of course, the parameters of the existing laws. We have lawyers that in, in the network that practice law in what are called contributory negligence states. Um, and what that means for those who are unaware, it means that if you are found in a contrib state to have, who have, to have contributed 1% of, uh, to the causation of the crash, then you are barred 100% from any civil recovery. It makes it very, very hard for uh, lawyers, for plaintiffs' lawyers. I'm going to use uh, Ann Groniger as an example. She is our North Carolina bike law lawyer. Um, she used to practice civil rights law as well. She's a fantastic lady uh, and an incredibly strong and accomplished cyclist. But she most recently uh, was able to get a four-plus million-dollar jury verdict um, for the widow of a cyclist that was killed by a distracted driver in North Carolina. That is a precedent-setting 
uh, jury verdict. It, it, those things don't happen, especially in North Carolina, which is a contrib state. Um, so those are two examples of, um, you know, of, of positive outcomes, you know, one on the criminal side, the other on the civil. Uh, I, I'm sure that you guys heard about the young man, Javier Lopez, who here in Florida was thrown in jail um, and arrested on two felony charges for rolling through a stop sign. Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, I saw that that video. That was that was uh, that was maddening. So yeah, yeah. Well, I, well, and John and I both follow um, Bike Law on Instagram, on Facebook, and and so we've we've you know seen that case. And I would encourage any of our listeners um, out there if you want to stay up to date with uh, you know the the, the fights. And the the legal victories that bike law is winning, um, you know, go follow them on social media as well. So, following up on that that jury um, that verdict, I, I guess the real win there is is saying that um, what what they decided was based on the evidence is that that motorist was one hundred percent liable for that, and the cyclist had had zero percent contribution to to that. Because I was even thinking like that's got to be so difficult to prove. Because I, I like how in almost any interaction of anything, how how could it be where um, you know, you didn't play a 1% role, but, but I think that's, maybe that's the power of that is saying that the cyclist had 0%. They, contri- they contributed nothing to this. It was 100% the, the fault of the, of the motorist. Really, really spectacular results. And that's one of the differences between the lawyers that are part of the bike law network and other attorneys that are competent and that that care. Um, there's just something about having that specific area of practice that requires a skill set and a level of experience that other attorneys just don't have. Um, in in reference to the Javier Lopez case, you know, that was a that's a completely different type of work that we did. You know, we're not defense lawyers. You know, the the the, the network they don't. They're, they're plaintiffs' lawyers. But we were able to work cohesively, and um, we, we partnered up with one of the, the best criminal defense lawyers here uh, in Central Florida. It's a guy named Dave Webster, phenomenal, phenomenal human being, great guy, did a great job working with us to not only get the charges dropped for Javier, but to have his record expunged. Wow. Who came from Puerto Rico after graduating high school to go to college. He works at a bike shop, um, has never been in trouble before. His mom is a nurse who works in the COVID unit at the Osceola Regional Medical Center. Um, You know, this is a wonderful family. They are the embodiment of the American dream. Um, So to have this boy who just turned 18 with a you know, with a criminal record was just absolutely absurd. So that's a very recent example of something that we did at Bike Law that was, you know, kind of different than what we typically do. But it goes back to if you ride a bicycle and if you need help, we will do everything that we can to help. So the the two crash examples you gave, um, you know, both of them involved a distracted driver. Um, you know, the, the one that was texting and, and the other that was distracted. Um, you know, when a crash happens, you know, what is it that usually goes wrong that leads to the cyclist getting hit? Is it normally a, a distracted driver? Or are there any other trends that we should be aware of? What we see most of the time is a driver that is impatient or feels entitled um, that believes that, you know, the 5, 10, 
15 seconds, even two, three, five minutes that they might have to wait to safely pass a cyclist is not worth it. That when they are um, in whatever their thought process is, that that their need to get to where they want to go is more of a priority than the consideration that should be given to the person on the bicycle that with whom they're sharing the road. Distracted driving um, is probably the number one cause of crashes. And the only reason I say probably is because it's incredibly difficult to prove. Um, you know, distraction comes in three forms. It can be manual, visual, cognitive, you know, having a conversation with a passenger in your vehicle. If you are deep in thought and engaged in that conversation, then, you know, that is a form of distraction. Obviously I don't think it's a reasonable thing to say. You can't talk to the person with whom you're in, in your vehicle, but just to, to look at how, how much our behaviors as motorists can impact our ability to drive safely, to operate our vehicles as safely as possible. You know, how many times have you seen women applying makeup, you know, while they're driving or texting or, you know, trying to hand a kid in the backseat of the minivan a sippy cup while they're throwing Cheerios at you? I mean, all of it is, you know, has become pretty normative in our everyday lives, but all of it is distracting. And when it comes to texting and driving or, you know, Facebooking and, and driving, that is cognitive distraction, it's manual distraction, and it's visual distraction. Um, you know, so when you see people, when you're driving down, and that's the other thing, most of us that ride bicycles also drive cars. So when you see somebody that slams on their brakes in the middle of an intersection or blows through a red light or misses a stop sign or, you know, those type of things, those are usually indicative of cognitive distraction. They're just not paying attention to what's going on. When you see the lane departure, when you see, you know, those type of people driving off the road and, and course correcting really quickly, those are usually indicative of a visual distraction. But um, most crashes, you know, and most fatal crashes are occurring in low light conditions. Um, so dawn and dusk or, or late at night. Um, and most of those drivers, I would would feel confident saying are, are either distracted or are intoxicated, you know, because if you're paying attention on the road, then then you're going to see the, the cyclist, you're going to see the pedestrian, you're going to see the traffic cones, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's, I would say that's even from what I've, I've heard and seen as a common uh, I don't know it's defense, but I just didn't see the cyclist. And it's like, it's a person and it's a person sitting on a bicycle. And like, what yeah, if it was just... another car and you hit, you rear-ended another car and said, I didn't see the car. You're, you're still at fault for hitting the car. Yeah. So you should have, because yeah, it's not like we're not like we're hiding or yeah. camouflaged, but you know, it, we, we obviously can't control what the, what the motorists are doing or their attitudes or even their, uh, to a certain extent, their, their understanding of, of the laws and all, but, but as cyclists, what, what can we do um, to maximize our own safety? What are those best practices that we can implement uh, to ride responsibly and ride safely? That's a great question. Um, you know, we're living in a very interesting uh, period of time <laughs> for, for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of those reasons is because there seems to be this celebrated belief that you know, that, that our rights are our rights and, and, and to some degree, sure, that that's, that's true and applicable to, you know, all different facets of our lives. But we believe, and I personally believe that just because you can, doesn't 
mean you should. That that just because it says you can ride on that particular road, if you know, you know, let's just say it's rush hour traffic. Let's just say that it's a high speed road where people tend not to follow the speed limit. Let's just say that, you know, there are problems with visibility or the condition or the surface of the road is, is subpar. You know, there are all of these different things that I think about before I get on, you know, or, you know, in the saddle on my bike uh, to go out for a ride. Um, there are a couple of things you know, as far as preventing an actual, the, the physical collision, you know, there are very few things that we can do as cyclists, but one of them, um, and, and there's, there's no way to, you can't prove a negative, right? So this has just been our anecdotal experience, but one of the things I do when I'm on my bike is if I'm coming up to an intersection, if I am making a right or a left-hand turn, if there's any question, if I have an opportunity to interact with the motorists on the road, I do it. Whether it's a wave, whether it's making eye contact, there's something about that human recognition that softens the oftentimes tenuous dynamic between motorists and cyclists. Um, mm-hmm. And that that recognition and acknowledgement should be reciprocal, right? It, it's mm-hmm. not that because we're more vulnerable, we expect to not show the same type of courtesies we would do if we were in a motor vehicle. Um, of course, we want to receive that from the drivers, but we also want to extend that to lead by example. That's That's one of the things. The second is predictable riding. I can't tell you how many times I've been in groups in which I have chosen not to finish the group ride because there's no semblance of organization. It's very difficult for somebody in a car or a truck to anticipate what a swarm of people on bikes are going to do if they're three, four, five abreast, if they're not mm-hmm. holding their line, if they're not signaling, if they, you know, and, and so that creates, that does not help to bring everybody closer together, to recognize that we're all in it together. It becomes a more divisive behavior on the part of the the cyclist or cyclists. So predictable riding is really important. Um, Visibility, making yourself as visible as as possible um, is important. knowing the, the, the laws, um, or ordinances for the geographic location of where you are riding. Um, those things are all preventative and proactive, uh, preventative measures. Is there a guarantee? Of course not. Um, but those things certainly are a net positive and, and help. Those are all things too that, yeah, those are, those are great. And I, and I think to a certain extent, we oftentimes, um, are, and, and I think we should be kind of our own police ourselves. I, I know I get one of my biggest frustrations is when I see a cyclist out riding on a road that they just have no business riding out on. And because I've, I've had these experiences and I've had these friends who've been hit by vehicles, it's, it's, it's right. They're, they're not, you, you, you get nervous for them. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, why, why now? Why here? There are so many good roads you could go ride. Why are you riding on this busy road? That's, that's not, or, or the, the major pet peeve, uh, is is when we see them uh, blowing through uh, stop stoplights, stop, you know, not and those are it's you know it's it's one of those things where one person looks bad and makes us all look bad. So it's I think they're even for me. I know I get frustrated. And same thing. I've I've not ridden with people because of the way they've they've acted on a ride. It's like I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna associate with that person. One, they're putting me at risk. But you know I don't I don't want to be side by side with that person out on a bike because it's too important for me. I, I want to do all I can to kind of dispel some of those myths that we have as, as cyclists that, that we don't follow the law. 
Uh, so I think that's a huge one. You know, you bring up a really good point that, you know, we could probably talk about this stuff for hours and hours and hours. Um, you know, the reality is, is that there is even within our cycling community, there are disparities between, um, you know, how we are treated and our access to the type of resources that we, to which we're entitled, even within our community. So, you know, I hear you talking about the kind of stuff that, that I, you know, just kind of piggybacking on what I had mentioned. And the interesting thing is that when I see those behaviors and they're things that, that, that are, are, are being practiced by recreational cyclists, you know, you see somebody who's on maybe a $10,000 bike, you know, and they've got a $500 kit and they're just, making, like you said, making all of us look bad, um, that works cooperatively with another situation that just doesn't get enough attention. It's something that we at BikeLar are very focused on changing, which is that we have, uh, you know, a very significant percentage of our national bike population and community that lives at or below the poverty line that are invisible, uh, literally in, invisible, not just to motorists on the road, but even to our cycling community as a whole. These are people who don't have access to the type of educational information that all of us have, at least the three of us have had access to the resources, the, the seat at the table to, to participate in some of the decision-making at the engineering or the policy level. Um, you know, so those disparities contribute to the, uh, crash fatality numbers that we're logging every year in this country. And they also contribute, they also contribute to the frustration that, um, we as cyclists and even as motorists feel, and, and that, that, tenuous dynamic or relationship between us. You know, if, if someone doesn't have access to a bike shop or the information or the education to say, Hey, like, unlike running, you need to ride with traffic in the same direction. Yeah. When, when you ask cyclists who, or people, you know, whether they're utilitarian, you know, commuters, um, just people who depend on the bike for its original intended purpose to get from one place to the next, you know, they'll tell you, well, I ride against traffic or into oncoming because I want to see what's in front of me. I, I want to know what's going on. Um, and if they don't have this same access to an education, uh, about, best or the safest bike practices and how to ride, you know, they're, they're kind of left to their own devices. So we, we have to look at the Delta that, that exists among us within our own community, um, before we can expect things to change. But I, I do believe that the cyclists like, like you guys and, and, and like me that are recreational, that we're age groupers, we're, we're doing this because we love it, not because we have to. Um, we have a responsibility to help elevate and teach those who might not be as lucky uh, as we are so that, you know, with, with everybody that's out there riding safely, we become safer as a collective whole. So you're, you're actually doing a lot of that bicycle um, safety and education through the Bike Law Foundation. Um, you know, what, what are some of the initiatives that you have um, through the Bike Law Foundation that, that you're using to spread bicycle awareness through community engagement? We... So when I say that we want to be as much of a comprehensive cycling resource as possible, I mean that uh, very genuinely. Um, there's a lot of work with local and state uh, legislators to make sure that we have the the best progressive and protective 
bicycle laws. Um, we do a lot of education through seminars and talks at local bike shops and with local cycling clubs. Um, we like to sponsor different organizations or donate, contribute, work cohesively with other nonprofits. Uh, there's a lot that we do, and it really is based on the need in the local community. Um, the As Americans, we don't have nationally consistent legislation. You know, we, we, we have, you know, if you are an interstate truck driver carrying hazardous material, you know, there, there are, there are laws that, you know, that are consistent from one state to the next for sure on a national level. Um, but even wearing a seatbelt, right. Those things are determined by at the state level. And so it's difficult to affect change on a scale that is is that big. So what we aim to do through the direction and the leadership of the independent bike law attorneys from state to state is create um, initiatives and, uh, and and our calls to, to action in those places are predicated upon the specific needs of those communities. So, so something you mentioned earlier um, that's a big part of staying safe on the bike um, is being visible uh, to motorists. And, and I got to say this uh, while I can, Bike Law just teamed up with Wadi Inc. to put out a very visible and a very slick looking cycling jersey. And, and John is like an all black, you know, just kind of monochrome, like one color kit kind of guy. I love the bright pops of color. So when I saw that jersey come out, Rachel, I was like, oh man, that's that's so uh, nice looking. Um, but, you know, e- even just beyond kind of the, the brighter jerseys, you know, what, what are kind of your top tips for increasing visibility out on the road? So, um... I, I, I'm going to circle back, put a pin in that. I, I, what I want to say is uh, Bike Law partnered with Wadi Inc. Uh, several years ago, and, and that partnership was built upon a personal relationship and friendship with Heather Jackson, who I know you guys know, yep. and her husband, Sean Watkins. That partnership was cultivated over the, the fact that we share, we have the same ideas and, and priorities. They are just the most incredible, generous, committed, um, selfless people that have done really, really incredible things for our triathlon community. And we just thought that it was a, it was a very symbiotic relationship for us to partner with them. And so talking about how, you know, John likes the, the monochrome, the, the black kits, I tend to skew more towards that that side as well. My belief is that we should be able to ride our bicycles wearing whatever makes us most comfortable. I do not believe that you should have to be dressed like a disco ball covered in Christmas lights. John is fist pumping this right now. He's, he's having a good time hearing this. And there are, there are so many other cyclists, um, or triathletes that feel exactly the same way. Now, um, is that the recommendation to go out in all black and, and make yourself, you know, as camouflaged with the, the asphalt as possible? No. Do I think that you should be able to? Yes. Are those the circumstances that, you know, in which we're living and riding today? No. Um, do we take any issue whatsoever with a cyclist who's been involved in a crash where, you know, somebody wants to comment, well, they were wearing black or dark blue, or I mean, I don't care if you're wearing pink with purple polka dots, that has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Neither does wearing a helmet, by the way. Um, but the 
most recent bright colored kit that that you've seen um, was a collaborative design uh, effort between myself and, and Wadi Inc. And we called it the Dusk and Dawn Collection um, because 70% of bicycle crash fatalities occur in low light conditions around dusk and dawn. We released it last year um, at the end of daylight savings time because, of course, losing that hour of daylight not only impacts visibility uh, for motorists, but also it impacts our circadian rhythms. You know, we don't realize how much an hour's difference really makes. Um, you know, I'm sure for everybody who works an office job, you know, come five, six o'clock after daylight savings is over, you're exhausted. Um, so that was the reasoning behind that particular uh, kit design. Our first kit with Wadi Inc. was black. Um, and it is still my, my favorite of the three that we've done. Um, but to answer the question about what else can be done to make yourself more visible, the single most important device for any cyclist, regardless of whether you're a triathlete or not, um, is the red rear blinky light. It is absolutely a non-negotiable. Um, it is very, very important. And in most states, it is a legal requirement to, to ride your, your, your bicycle in low light or in nighttime conditions. Um, it is how it is the best way to make yourself visible, you know, to, to other people on the road. Um, you know, as far as wearing a black kit goes, I think people should wear what they're comfortable in. You know, people drive black cars every day of the week. So, um, it's really about what makes you feel most confident and comfortable while you're in the saddle. So I think we've seen even a proliferation of, of the lights on the bikes, which is great. And I remember, uh, my light bulb moment, so to speak of, of when, when I realized I needed a light on my bike as I was out, um, working a training camp down in Galveston on the 70.3 Texas course. And it's just, it's miles and miles and miles right along the, the Texas Gulf coast. And I remember seeing a cyclist, there's no telling how far they were. It, it was easily a mile down the road, but I could see the red blinking light. Um, I, I, there was no chance I could actually make out the bike or the person or anything like that. It was, he was so far away, but I could see that blinking light and, and yeah, it was just a light bulb moment for me to say that thing works and it's so cheap and so easy. I absolutely am getting one of those today. And, and yeah, for, it's been a priority ever since to have that light. I've, I've had moments where you, you see that and, uh, and, and you can see somebody so well from so far away that, that I've been tempted to kind of slow down next to them and be like, Hey, what light are you using? Because <laughs> yeah. I, I want to know, is mine that visible? If mine's not that visible, I want to make sure it is. Because and I can only imagine it's that much more visible, um, in, in those, those low light, uh, areas that you've mentioned that, that were so risky. Um, so even doing our best with, with ride safety and, and visibility to motorists and, and education, um, inevitably there, there will be things that, that are going to happen. So when an athlete gets hit by a vehicle, what steps should they take afterwards? If you're involved in a crash uh, while riding your bike, the, the most important thing is to get as much documentation as possible. Obviously this advice that I'm about to give is, you know, you have to consider the, the, the specific conditions of any crash. If you are physically able, call the police immediately. If you have sustained any injuries, accept the, the ride in the ambulance to, to get checked out. Um, when you're involved in any sort of collision, whether it's driving your car or riding your bicycle, uh, there are endorphins, there's adrenaline, there's shock. There are all of these chemical things that are happening within our brains and bodies that, 
you know, you can't really account for it in the moment, but I can guarantee you that 24, 48, 72 hours later, when you're feeling worse than you were, um, when the crash or the moments after the crash occurred, you know, you can't, you can't go back. You don't get a second chance to, to do it the best way that, that, uh, that you can. Of course, it's, another indicia of why things are so imbalanced for us because suffering that injustice to begin with the crash itself is a burden big enough to be, you know, to start, but to have to manage things afterwards can become increasingly more tedious and and difficult can sometimes feel insurmountable. But if you have the ability to call 911, do it. If you have the ability to get in and accept the medical care and to get checked out, do it, get everything documented. Um, those things are really important. Um, you know, take as many photos as you can, make sure to get the driver's information, witness information. Uh, it sounds like a really long list of things to have to do after suffering a crash, but if you can, then do them for sure. Stay away from social media. A lot of times the, the natural inclination is you're sitting in a hospital room or in an ambulance and you want to take a selfie and you want to let people know what happened. That is completely normal. Not only is it normal, but it's it's, it's natural and it's understandable that you want your community, your friends, your family to not only know what happened, but to rally around you for that support. Um, it can come back to bite you in the ass if, you know, in, in some circumstances, you just want to keep your powder dry as, as much as possible. So no posting on social as difficult as that might be. Um, and give us a call. You know, it, it doesn't have to be because you're looking to hire a lawyer. It could just be to say, hey, I've never been involved in this situation before. This is your area of expertise. I need help. Um, you know, and, and we're there for, for any circumstance that involves a, a bike. So, but before we move on to our cool down, um, you know, for folks who have listened to this conversation, um, you know, what is kind of, you, you mentioned, okay, if, if you're in that scenario, you, you, you've been in a crash, you know, give bike law a call. Uh, but, but even beyond that, you know, how can we, um, just as members of the cycling and multi-sport community, how can we support the efforts of bike law and, and where can we go to buy some of that sweet bike law merchandise that we've already talked about? I think that supporting bike law means doing your part as a contributing member of our cycling and multi-sport community. Um, I, I think that, you know, if you're an experienced or an avid rider, consider taking an hour a week to offer your experience to somebody who might want to get in the saddle, but feels intimidated or might be a, a novice rider that just needs somebody to to teach them what we've been taught through group rides, through experience, just through, through time, you know, in, in the saddle, um, you know, we, and, and I am, I certainly would never turn away an offer to promote bike law, our mission, um, the work that we're doing. Um, you know, you can go to our website, which is www.bikelaw.com. And on the website, you have access to look at our network lawyers. Um, we have a blog page that is something that I really, really love because this is where the lawyers and some of our ambassadors um, are able to share what they're doing 
in respect to their local communities or the cases that they're working or the victories that they've had or the things that they're experiencing or, or, or noticing um, across their, uh, within their community or geographic location. Um, and that's also where you can purchase bike law merchandise. So t-shirts, cycling caps, water bottles, um, kits, uh, kit items, things like that can all be found on our website. So speaking of, I am actually currently looking at the website and seeing the the one and only Rachel Maney modeling, uh, looking super dope in the 950 bike law cap, and I am destroyed that it's sold out. So you're going to have to let me know when that cap is back in stock. Yeah, and, and one of the things... Um, We'll be doing a limited edition merch drop on the 21st of every month uh, around the, the, the calendar year. The reason for that is there are 21 stages in the Tour de France. Good reason. Uh, you can find um, restocked merchandise as well as limited edition merchandise. Um, you know, these next few months are pretty special. I encourage everybody to, to take a look or a stop by on the 21st. Um, one of the things that I'm very passionate and proud about is that Bike Law uh, has recently partnered with, as the exclusive legal benefit to Women's Cycling Day. Um, it's a pretty big deal considering the role that women on bikes play and have played in not only the scalable growth, but the celebration of riding a bike. Um, it is the first, uh, the inaugural National Women's Cycling Day this year, 2020, on October 10th. It'll be the second Saturday of every October moving forward. Um, and, and so over the next couple of months, there's going to be a lot of specialty limited edition merchandise that we're releasing uh, as we look forward to Women's Cycling Day this year. So check back. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've got caps coming and bottles and t-shirts and a very, very special women's only kit. Great set, everyone. Let's cool down. So I want to start our cool down today by acknowledging something that Rachel said earlier. Um, and I didn't want to kind of make this joke during um, kind of our more serious interview about bicycle safety. Uh, but but Rachel, you, you referred to cars as a 3,000-pound death machine. And the joke I wanted to make is that that would be a killer rock band name. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you, you could definitely picture a band called 3,000 Pound Death Machine opening for like Metallica or yeah. something. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, terrible joke aside, um, you know, to kind of cool us down today, um, we're just going to spend a few minutes talking about just a really, really cool race uh, in Rachel's home state of Florida. Um, the Challenge Family is a race production company that puts on just top shelf multi sport races all around the world. Um, and a few years ago, they added a really cool event to their portfolio called Challenge Daytona. And it just so happens that Bike Law is a sponsor of Challenge Daytona. And Rachel, you've done this race uh, yourself already. So kind of talk us through the event and, and what makes this race in Daytona a, a great one. Yeah, so we partnered with Challenge Daytona for their inaugural year, which was, it'll be three years ago this December, um, for a variety of reasons. Number one, I am a huge supporter of uh, the Challenge Family Race Organization. When they say that they are focused on the athlete and the experience for that athlete, it is a true statement. Um, I, I think that all of us have at least once experienced some frustration when you pay 
what can be an exorbitant amount of money to participate in an organized race and you just feel like a bib number um, for whatever that reason may be. Maybe it's personal attention. Maybe it's, you know, the safety of the course. Maybe it's, you know, the the, the finisher medal or the yeah. $800 book bag that falls apart. I, I don't know. <laughs> but the, the experience with Challenge and at Challenge Daytona is a, a different one. It's very unique. Um, it is family oriented. There is something for everybody. And I, I cannot stress that enough. There really is something for everybody. And the way that they integrate the pro race with the age group race is, is something that's pretty special as well. I have to say, you know, I am not a NASCAR person. Yeah. I don't know. For me, I just can't watch uh, uh, vehicles go around in a circle like, like that. However, however, it's a very different experience doing that while on your own bike, riding on the racetrack at Daytona on the International Speedway. It's it, it's a massive facility. It's a massive track. So cool, guys. Like, yeah. so fun. Um, and because of the time of year, you know, I don't really know too many competitive triathletes that are necessarily looking for a December A race. However, however, um, you know, and especially this year with all of the race cancellations, you know, it is a stellar option. It's something you know, we just have such a good time. We have, you know, a group of what can be anywhere between 25 and 40 ambassadors and friends, you know, members of our bike law family and community that come out and race and support. Um, you know, you can find us at the expo the last couple of years we've put on the, the after party and provided the band for, um, for the, the after party and, and, and the entertainment and stuff. So, so it's, it's more like an end of year celebration, you know, and, and challenge Daytona does a really, really good job of championing that and providing a really fun environment and safe race course for everybody to participate. Yeah. So when I, I remember when challenge family, I, I followed them on social media and, and challenge Roth is just like a bucket list race for me that, that I'm determined to do eventually. Right. Um, so when they added challenge Daytona, I, I grew up, uh, you know, an hour and a half from Daytona, my family. And, I, you know, we had season tickets to not the Daytona 500, but the Pepsi 400 at, at the time. I'm sure it's sponsored by somebody different now. But so I've, I've been to a couple of NASCAR races there. And, and so when I saw that they, you know, for our, our listeners to know that the swim is in the lake that is in the infield of the Daytona track. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's such a big facility that the lake in the infield is big enough for a 1.2 mile swim. Uh, and, and then, you know, on, on the bike, you go around the track. Uh, is it one time Rachel before exiting and heading to the, the Florida coast? So they've just released the new bike course for the year. So they've, they've changed it. Um, and, and this is, you know, like you mentioned for the middle distance or for the half iron distance, uh, athletes, but there's also the sprint option. And if you do the sprint option, which is what I did when I, I raced it, um, the entire, your entire race is contained within the speedway, like, oh, that's like awesome. it's in the infield, you are riding on the speedway and then you are running inside of the facility as well. So it's a completely enclosed, um, race course. Well, Rachel, I'm going to do this race eventually. Uh, I haven't done it yet. I, I do have uh, triathlete friends in Florida. And so uh, when I when I sign up for Challenge Daytona, I will let you know and come visit you guys at the Bike Law uh, Expo tent. Yes, that would be wonderful. Well, that's it for today, folks. I want to thank Rachel Maney from Bike Law and Coach John Mayfield for talking about bike safety and advocacy with us today. Shout out to Garmin for partnering with us on today's episode. Head to Garmin.com to see what Garmin TriTech should be your next upgrade and could help make you a little bit more visible out on the roads. 
Enjoying the podcast? Have any triathlon questions or topics you want to hear us talk about? Head to tridout.com slash podcast and click on submit feedback to let us know what you're thinking. We'll have a new show coming your way soon. And until then, happy training. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and share the TriDot podcast with your triathlon crew. For more great tri content and community, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Ready to optimize your training? Head to TriDot.com and start your free trial today. TriDot, the obvious and automatic choice for triathlon training.